Counselor, God, Father, Prince, exalted titles declared by a prophet, names whispered for generations by an anxious and hurting people. These words were given to the nation of Judah, the people of God, as they faced captivity, their moment of reckoning in the wake of their rebellion. Yet, even as they were confronted with the consequences of their sin, they received the promise of a king, a beacon of hope to hold as they walked under the shadow of death. As they carried the promise, they knew what these words meant. They knew the weight of these titles. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Israel's kings and prophets longed to be effective counselors. The desire was seen in the humble prayers of Solomon, in the frustrated confessions of Jeremiah. They wanted to be a source of wisdom, familiar with the path of goodness, fluent in the ways of righteousness, able to lead those willing to listen. Yet there were not many willing to listen. Humanity loves to pursue our own ambition, doing what is right in our eyes, following in the steps of our forefather and mother, the ones who preferred the lies of a serpent over the kindness of their creator, the ones whose pursuit of a false counselor was replicated by every one of their descendants. Heeding the word of wicked counselors led to our death and depression, to our despair and destruction. Any longing for goodness and righteousness we had remained unfulfilled. So for centuries, the people of God carried the hope of a wonderful counselor, one whose wisdom would be incomprehensible, one whose life would shine so brightly the darkness would flee, a prophet who could guide us to something greater than temporary goodness or fleeting righteousness, a king who would lead to an everlasting kingdom, to life and life abundant, to glory without end. This is the hope we carried. This was the teacher we longed for. The wonderful counselor has a name. His name is Jesus. Good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Right, we all know um, the famous Christmas line that for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And um, that's what really what we're going to focus our hearts and minds around this season. So do me a favor, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah cha uh, chapter 11. We're going to talk about this prophecy of this wonderful counselor. And while you're turning there, I want to kind of set the stage for where we're going these next few weeks. Um, this is not a Christmas series. This is an Advent series. And even though it sounds the same, there's actually quite a difference. Um, we are not talking about Christmas right now. My job is to prepare our hearts for Christmas for what is to come, because I believe that Christmas is such an important holiday that if we don't prepare rightly for it, we will miss it and we will waste it. 
right? When um, I was in high school and I would play sports, you wouldn't just show up to the field when the game was about to start, right? You'd come early, you'd warm up, you'd stretch, you'd get ready for what you were about to engage in. And we need to get our hearts ready for Christmas. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what does it mean that we have this wonderful counselor? And then I want to look at very, very real implications that this has for us this season. So follow along as I read Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. It says this. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide, disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And he shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. All right, we're going to stop there after verse 5. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to see four things, um, or four ways our wonderful counselor is described, and they're all really, really important. Here's the first. You need to understand that he would come from the line of Jesse. That this is a promise by the prophet Isaiah that he would come from the line of David, the, the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, and it said that this king would come from that line. And here's why that's important. You need to understand, in Israel, God only anointed, or there was one king that was God's king. When God told the nation of Israel, you guys want a king, you decide who your ruler is, they chose Saul. He was tall, he was good looking, he was strong, he was powerful, but his heart didn't follow the Lord. So when Saul failed, God said, all right, now it's my turn. And, and I'm going to anoint a king that's after my own heart. And he anointed David. So, so when it says that he would come from the line of Jesse, it would say he would follow after David. This would be God's choice. Okay, the next thing we see, look at verse 2. It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, a spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Okay, here's what we need to know about this wonderful counselor. He will perfectly know what is right. I think about that. That our wonderful counselor says he will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He will perfectly know what is true, and he won't judge like you and I judge. He won't be swayed by false testimony. He, it is impossible to lie to him because he knows what is true. And I would argue that for most of us in this room, we would say that the worst decisions we've ever made in our life is when we were going by what we saw or we were going by appearances or we were going by what we felt. We made decisions too quickly and they were the wrong choice. Maybe we trusted someone that was untrustworthy. Maybe we meant or we went with things that were on the surface and that led us to pain. It says this wonderful counselor won't be like that at all. He will judge differently. He will have a spirit of truth and righteousness. He will perfectly know what is right. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 2 again. It says he will also have the spirit of counsel and might. This means he will also have the power to perfectly execute righteousness. 
And this is what I love about our wonderful counselor, Jesus. Not only does he perfectly know what is true, he has the perfect power to execute it. Nothing can thwart his plans. He knows what is right, and he has the strength to do it. You see, when we think of counselor, we we have a very, very passive picture in our mind, maybe, right? Like when you think of a counselor, what, what, what comes to your mind? My, my guess it's a guy in his 50s or 60s who's wearing a nice sweater. He's bald, he has glasses, got you know, some nice facial hair, and he sits with his legs crossed and he listens to us as we talk, right? We pay him money, we talk about our lives, and that he nods a lot, he shakes his head, and at the end he gives us advice on what we should do. They are good listeners who give advice. Well, the biblical idea of counselor isn't just that he knows what is right, but he has power and might to accomplish it. Um, it's really, really frustrating to see injustice and to know something's wrong and not have any power to change it, isn't it? Have you guys ever experienced that before? Have you ever seen someone do something wrong and get away with it? Have you ever seen people be treated misfairly and not be able to do anything about it? Um, my girls, they're 10, and uh, they're rule followers. And uh, they, like parent-teacher conferences, we had them last week, they're always easy for my girls. They listen, they obey, they're good, they follow the rules. Well, the thing that brings my girls most stress is they'll come home and they'll like be in tears. And Mary will be like, what's going on? How was school? And they'll be like, we just had a bad day. And, and Mary goes, what do you mean? Like, my class was terrible. They weren't listening to the teacher, they weren't obeying, they weren't following instructions, and our teachers were getting frustrated and they were mad, and, and, and we were like, did you guys, were you guys bad? Were you guys not listening? And they're like, no, we were, and we were telling the kids to be quiet, and we were trying to obey, but no one was listening to us, and we just feel powerless, right? This would happen in Israel all the time. God would send a prophet to the nation, and he would call them to repent and call them to righteousness, but no one would listen. The, the king would, would turn his heart, the people wouldn't listen, and the prophet would be a voice in the wilderness. Well, church, look here. That is not this wonderful counselor. He is not a voice that's being ignored in the wilderness. He is a king who has the power to execute what is righteous. Fourth thing we see is that he will perfectly represent the poor and the meek says, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And when it says that he will judge the poor, we think of when you think of judging someone or judgment, we think of condemnation, but that's not what this passage is saying. He's saying he will treat the poor with fairness. He will judge them uh, fairly with righteousness. He will be for the meek of the earth and he will be against the wicked. He will be an advocate for the people who often don't have advocates. He will be a voice for the voiceless. voiceless. Church, look here. And, and I, this is important because this has implications for us. Do you know that Jesus went out of his way to deeply unite himself with the lowly? both the lowly in heart and the lowly in actual life circumstances. Jesus wouldn't come as a prince or a ruler, but as a kid from a poor family whose dad was a carpenter. 
You know, it's interesting in the Gospels when Jesus' family brings him to the temple to have him be circumcised, it says that they bring two birds as the offering for, for that ceremony. And what's interesting is, is that is what the kind of lowest tax income bracket was required to give to the temple to have their child circumcised. They didn't have much. Jesus spent most of his adult life homeless, traveling from friend's house to friend's house, city to city. Jesus wouldn't just be a representative of the powerful or the elite, but he would identify with the poor and promise them fairness and equity. All right, so if you look at the screen right now, you notice behind the last three points, I have three words in parentheses. I have um, prophet, king, and priest. This is really, really interesting. Those were the three branches of government in Israel. When God established his nation, he gave prophets, and the prophets had a job. They would speak for God. They would tell the people the truth. They would be God's mouthpiece, and they would call them to repentance, or they would call them to follow the law, or, or, or they would give messages to kings on behalf of God. They would perfectly know what was right and speak for God. The kings, they would lead. They would organize. They would run the country. They would build the armies. They would go to war. They would make sure that, that the nation was operating healthily and, and effectively. And then the priests, they had two jobs. The first is, is they would care for the needy. Do you know it's oftentimes when Jesus did miracles, they were right outside the temple or right outside synagogues? Why is that? Because what happened is, is that if you had a disease or if you couldn't walk, if you needed help, if you needed people to help you, the family and friends would drop them off at the temple because the priests would care and make sure they got food and that they were taken care of. The other thing that the priests would do is that they would represent the people to God. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. They would enter the actual presence of God, and they would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. And what Isaiah is saying in this prophecy is that our wonderful counselor would perfectly fulfill all three offices. He would perfectly know what is right, like the prophets. He would have the perfect power to execute righteousness, like the king. And he would be near to those in need and represent the people before God, just like the priests. Do you know that after Jesus died and rose from the dead, God never calls another prophet to the nation of Israel? He never establishes another king, and the sacrificial system ends, and the temple system is replaced by the church because Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of all three offices. And here's what I want you to see, though. Pay, pay attention to this, right? In the first five verses, this counselor, this leader sounds amazing, but he sounds like a man, doesn't he? That this would be a good guy who, who, who would know what is right, who would have power, who would be righteous. He would be a leader after God's own heart, much like King David. But, but there's nothing supernatural about this leader. It just sounds like a really, really good king that the people should look forward to. But what Isaiah is going to do in verse 6 is he's going to blow the lid off the door of what the expectations for this Messiah would be. Look at verse 6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for all peoples, of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
Okay, here's what Isaiah does in these next five verses. He says that this will be a supernatural leader who will heal the world. Right, look at the language he uses about this wonderful counselor. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. The bear and the calf will hang out and they will not kill each other. They will not eat each other. Listen, it says there will be no more death. There will be no more murder. There will be no more strife. Look what it says about the young child. It says a young child will play next to the hole of a cobra. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more fear. There will be no more poison. There there will be no more anxiety over death. But this counselor will heal everything that is broken. This king will do what no man could ever do. Look again at verse 10. I love this. It says, In that day the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, uh, of him all of the nations shall inquire. All right, do you notice the difference between verse 1 and verse 10? Look, it says in verse 1, talking about Jesus, it's a shoot from Jesse. So that's a picture of like a tree and a shoot being a branch, that he would come from the line of Jesse, that he would be a shoot off of the stump. But in verse 10, it says that he would be the root of Jesse. Do you see what the prophet's saying there? Is not only would he come from the line of David, but he would also be the one who was there before the line was even established. That he would be both a man and both the eternal God of the universe. This would not just be the move of a man. This would be a move of God that would change the world forever. And here's the big idea, and here's where we're going to start to get really practical. It's this. It's that the wisdom of the world will always bow to our wonderful counselor. And the hope that I want to give this morning is that the wisdom of the world will bow to the wisdom of our wonderful counselor. And here's why. Because Jesus is more than a man. He is the supernatural, living God, Savior of the world. And and here's why that's important. Because you and I are limited, aren't we? Like, Like, why are we tired when we get up in the morning? Because we're limited. We're limited in strength. Why, if I preach five minutes longer than I'm supposed to, you guys start freaking out because you're so hungry? It's because we're limited, right? We need food. We need to spend a third of our lives sleeping just to have the strength to to live. We're limited in power. But listen, Jesus isn't. We're limited in wisdom. We're limited in knowledge. We're limited in perspective. We're limited in righteousness. Jesus is limited in none of these things. Our wonderful counselor has no limits. And so what I want to do is I want to give a Christmas warning and, and something I want us to be careful of as we enter this season Um, Do not neglect the supernatural power of Christianity. Do not neglect the supernatural power of Christianity. Um, First thing I want to talk about is, is the supernatural power of Jesus. Like church, look here. To be a Christian, you have to believe in the supernatural. Think about Christmas. Think about what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that the eternal God of the universe was born to a virgin. Right? There's the miraculous all over that. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then rose for, uh, again from the grave, defeating death. There's supernatural miracles all over Christianity. And here's the tension point for us. Right? We live in a culture that's dominated by secularism where there is no God, there, there is no supernatural, and we know that there are many in our culture who would openly mock us for believing that a virgin could conceive a son and that he would be the son of God. We would be mocked for that. But can I give you some encouragement, church? Do you know that the wisdom of the world has always mocked the things of God? 
And yet, generation after generation after generation, the wisdom of God has prevailed. Let me prove it to you. Go back one chapter to Isaiah 10. I talked about this last week. Um, Isaiah and and Jeremiah, they were prophets who were uh, prophesying to Judah right before they'd be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And and the Assyrians, they're this strong army, they're a world power, they're wicked people, and and their leader at the time was a guy named Sennacherib. And and Sennacherib, um, as you would expect a, a war hero and world power type leader to be, he was super full of himself. Like Sennacherib was a bro. And he was a guy who, you know, look how strong I am. Look at my might. He's always drinking protein shakes and stuff, telling everyone how strong he is. And in fact, he would openly mock God. And he would say, there is no God that can stop my armies. There is no God that can defeat my horses. There is no God that can stop the power of my nation. And in chapter 10 of Isaiah, God gives Isaiah a prophecy condemning the Assyrians. And look what he says in verse 15. He says, shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? See what God's saying? It's so cool here. He's like, Sennacherib, you are a tool in my hand, and I am using you to accomplish my purposes. You have no strength outside of the strength that I have given you, and I will throw you in the fire as soon as I'm done with you. And that's exactly what happened. Right? Think about the Romans. Right? They openly mocked Christianity. Right? Who do these weak people think that they are? Let's feed them to the lions. Let's have them be killed by gladiators. Let's light them on fire. They will back down. They will walk away. And yet a few hundred years later, the, the Christianity is such a strong movement in the Roman Empire that many historians believe that Constantine adopted Christianity not because of a vision that he had, but because he knew that where the Roman Empire was going. He was a savvy politician. This was a wildfire that was changing the Roman Empire and couldn't be stopped, and he wanted to get in while the getting was good. Persecution, death, murder could not stop the movement of God, right? I think about secularism. There is no God. We are all we have. This is all that it is, right? If that was true, we should be seeing the things of God be crushed all over the world, and that's not happening. In fact, in every place that people have said that the gospel could never take root, it's happening as I speak. People said the gospel will never take root in Africa. Way too much tradition, way, way, way too many different types of beliefs. It's never going to be compatible. Um, Africa is blowing up with Christianity. People said it'll never get to China, it will never get to Korea, it will never get to these Asian nations, and yet we see they are the fastest growing in percentage uh, number of believers in the entire world right now. Christianity is a supernatural wildfire that cannot be extinguished. Second thing I want to talk about is the supernatural impact of Jesus' life. I mean, think about it. Jesus was a man who was never formally educated, who was born to poor parents in a small occupied territory of the Roman Empire, who lived the first 30 years of his life in complete anonymity, and very, very early into his public ministry was brutally executed for treason. Like, if you were going to draw up how to become the most influential person in the history of the world, that wouldn't be the game plan, right? He would be born in Rome. He would be a leader. He would be educated. He would have years and years and years to teach and philosophize. None of that happened, and yet we know that he is the most influential person in the history of the world. 
Almost 2,000 years later, a third of the entire world's population identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Well over 2 billion people. There have been entire civilizations founded on his teaching in life. Countries established on the principles of Jesus. It's not how you would ever script it or plan it. It can only be described as a supernatural movement of God. And I think there's a really beautiful picture of this in the Christmas story. Um, How many of you are familiar with the story of the three wise men? Right? Really, really popular, right? Jesus is born, and and then all of a sudden these these three kings or these three wise men, they come and they bring Jesus these expensive gifts, and they bow down and worship Jesus. Well, can I be honest with you? I've always been fascinated by the wise men. I, I, I think they're so cool. Like, they're so mysterious, right? Like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these three wise leaders just show up and all they want to do is worship Jesus and then they vanish as quick as they come. And so here's what I know. When I get to heaven, I'm hanging out with the wise men. They're they're in my crew. If we get to heaven and you want to find me, find wherever the wise men are. They're going to be my guys. All right. I want to get to know them. I want to understand how this all happened. Like, how did they know about the prophecies? How did they know to follow the star? What was that journey like? There's so many questions I have. It's cool. Most biblical scholars believe they were probably influenced by Daniel. Right? Daniel was taken into captivity. He rose to prominence out east in Babylon, and he did a ton of prophetic writing. Most people believe they were disciples of Daniel, and he was the one that keyed them into this Messiah hundreds of years later. Like, it's an awesome story. But the question is, is why does God add it into the narrative? Here's why. Because it's a beautiful metaphor or picture that the wisdom of the world would always bow down to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These guys represented the wisdom of the world. They were educated, they were powerful, they were leaders, they were astrologers. They were the best and brightest, and they traveled across the known world to bow at the feet of this child who would be king of kings and lord of lords. The wisdom of our world, church, will always bow to our wonderful counselor. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I gave a Christmas warning earlier. I want to amp it up a little bit. I want to talk about a Christmas nightmare, something that I'm really, really scared for us right now, and it's this. My fear for us is that we would take our wonderful counselor for granted, that we would have this wonderful counselor and not listen to him. How devastating would that be? And church, look at me really quick. Here's the thing. You can't counsel someone who believes they know everything. Right? If you've ever had a, a high schooler, you know this to be true. Like I used to be a high school pastor. I, I'm there with you. When someone thinks they know all of the answers, it's impossible to help them and it's impossible to counsel them. And my fear for us is that if we could be honest, I think there's many in this room today that you enter church or you enter this Christmas season and your attitude is, I know all this stuff already. I've been to church a long time. I've heard the Christmas story before. I know how church works. We're going to sing some songs and Cal's going to preach a message. Like all of this is new, isn't new and it's stale for me. I, I, I want to play this out physically. So um, I don't know how well this will work. I don't know if everyone can see over here, but Mario, raise your hand. I'm going to use you. This is, uh, this is Mario. He's in my small group so I can pick on him. Um, here's what I think is going to happen. I think we're going to come into this season and even into church with two dispositions. The, the, the first disposition, Mario, I want you to play this out. Show me a disposition where it's like, man, I know all this stuff. I don't need to hear any of this. What would that look like right now, sitting in that seat? Yeah, feet up, you know, 
arms crossed, like, I, I, I got this, I know it, okay? So that, that's one disposition we can have. Now, I want you to do another disposition. Pretend like you desperately want to hear and you're fully engaged, like your wife's talking to you and you're all in, right? Yeah, like, I'm listening, I'm here, I'm engaged, I love you, baby, you know what I mean? Like, like that's another disposition. And, and, and we're going to have a choice. Like, imagine how this impacts how we view the Word of God. If our attitude is, is, I know all this stuff, and I know the Bible, and I've read it before, like, we're going to limit its supernatural power in our life, aren't we? Like, if the Bible says that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it wants to do surgery on our heart every time we read it to cut out what is wicked and to heal us. But if we come and I know all this stuff, why would we read it? I think about coming into church, man, hey, I, I know the songs, I've heard the songs, I hope we sing what we like, I hope the, the pastor's funny, but all of this I've heard before. Right? No, 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 what, what God's word says is that when we gather together and worship, that the spirit of God is present here like it is at no other time during the week, that God draws near to us, that he wants to move in our hearts when we come together to worship him, and he wants to change us. That will only happen when we're leaning in. And even this Christmas, if it's like, yeah, I know the routine and I know the stories and I went to the Jingle Bell Parade and I've seen all the lights, but it's just something we do at the end of the year, right? Then your attitude's like this. But are you leaning in? Like, like can I ask you this question very, very um, frankly? Are you still amazed at God's love for you? Are you still amazed at the lengths that God went to redeem you? Because that's what Christmas is all about. It's not just a story about a baby in a manger. It's about the relentless pursuit of a God who did everything for you. And listen, if that's stale in your heart, I'm nervous for you. Um, my wife and I love to watch movies. And um, when I uh, watch a movie, here's the one thing I want. I love when I don't know anything about the movie. I love coming into a movie completely blind. I don't want to see the previews. I don't want to know the plot. Like, I just want to go on a recommendation. So if Matt's like, yo, Cal, I saw this movie and it was awesome. I'm like, don't tell me anything. I just want to watch it. All right, my wife's the complete opposite. My wife, she really, really loves the Hallmark Christmas movies this time of year. So she got the app and she watches all of the Christmas movies. Here's the thing about Hallmark Christmas movies. There's like millions of them and it's all the exact same movie. It's literally the same plot and the same thing happening over and over and over. I'm like, how do you do this to yourself? This is brain damage. And she's like, no, it's a warm Christmas blanket. I know what's going to happen. I don't have to be stressed. I just feel good. And I'm like, no, no, I can't even watch the same movie twice because if, I, if it's not new to me, I'm not going to engage. And listen, it's one thing if I'm like that when it comes to movies, but I have to have the gear to continue to lean in and engage my heart with the greatest story ever told, the story of the gospel and God's love for us. Where is your heart at? So as we close our time together, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask us three Advent questions to honestly prepare our hearts for this season. Here's the first. And I want you to really ask yourself this. Um, do you enter this season with supernatural amazement? Is the story of Jesus, is it alive in your heart? Does it amaze you or has it gone, gone stale? Like when you think of Jesus, the eternal son of God in a manger, entering our brokenness to save us, does that move you emotionally? Like even seeing the previews for, for the, the movie we're going to watch here um, next Sunday night, like it brings tears to my eyes just seeing how much God would love us. 
When you think of Christmas, do you think of God's love? Do you think of what God has done for you? Are you filled with amazement? Here's the next one, and I think maybe this is the biggest tell. Um, Do you pray with supernatural expectation? We believe in a supernatural faith, and we believe that God is alive, and he draws near to us, and he hears us. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like you believe that God is alive, that he's near to you, that he's going to answer your prayers, and he can do a supernatural work in your life? Just a couple of weeks ago, um, we got word that a a man who um, goes to our church, he had to um, visit some family out of state, and while he was out of state, he got COVID, and he got really, really sick. And um, he had to go to the hospital, he had to be put on a ventilator, and they Doctors and nurses called the rest of his family to go out and fly out and be with him because they didn't think he was going to make it. And uh, so his family flew out there, and um, what we did was is, um, someone let us know what was going on, and uh, we put it on our prayer chain. And we have an email thread that there's hundreds of people on in our church, but when there's very, very significant prayer requests in our church, we, we, we pray for them as a church together. And so our, our church started praying for this man. And uh, two days later, the man was off the ventilator, and he was at home, and he was recovering from COVID. And the nurse that worked with him, she's the one that said, "Um, I've never seen this before. This can only be attributed to an act of God. So listen, I'm going to trust the experts on that one. We pray like we believe that God can move mountains because we ascribe to a supernatural faith. And listen, there is so much brokenness in all of our lives, right? physically, relationally, all sorts. Like just last night after church, we had a lady come up and she wanted to be anointed with oil and prayed over by the elders because she was dealing with some scary health diagnoses. So guess what we do? We circle around her, we put some oil on her head and we prayed for her because that's what the Bible calls us to do and we believe in a supernatural God that can heal. Do we pray with supernatural expectation? Then here's the third. Do I live with supernatural joy? Right, I think of the most famous Christmas carol we sing this year, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come. And I think so often the most simplest explanation is the best that our lives should be defined by joy, shouldn't it? Because our King has come, our wonderful Counselor is here, and He has saved us, that we have Jesus that we have Jesus who knows perfectly what is true and right. When we want to know what righteousness is, when we want to know what love is, when we want to know how to honor God with our lives, we can see it perfectly in Jesus. But he's not just a picture. He's also a powerful king who is ruling and reigning and perfectly able to execute righteousness. That in a world that is spiraling into uncertainty and chaos, he is an anchor in the storm and he is ours and we are his. And that he is our priest. That he not only perfectly represented us to God, that we are hidden in Christ's righteousness. That when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin and brokenness. He sees the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? But he also draws near to us and he saves us. The, the crushed in spirit, and, and when we are in pain and hurting, he is a counselor and he is a friend. Listen, our lives as Christians cannot be defined by what we have or who we know or, or, or the activities we do or the knowledge that, that we obtain or who we vote for or all of the other things the world would encourage us to define ourselves by. 
we are defined by the joy that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a lot to be joyful for, amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for this season. I thank you for a wonderful counselor who is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. You are ruling and reigning. You are King of kings, Lord of lords. May our hearts join the everlasting chorus of angels who are bowing down and worshiping you. God, I'm praying right now with expectation that you would do a supernatural work in this church this season. Would we lean forward? Would we be engaged to all that you would have for us? We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.